Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 17. John chapter 17. How many of you sometimes lack confidence in praying? Have you ever prayed for something for a really long time and God answered you with an emphatic no? You poured out your heart to God. You pled with God. You were desperately wanting God's power to be moving in your life and you wanted him to intervene in a way that you thought was best and then God didn't answer the prayer in the way that you wanted him to answer. You know, prayer is kind of a funny thing when you think about it. You as a weak human being are going before the very creator of the universe to tell something that God already knows you're not giving God information when you're praying. You're not praying to change God's mind. But in your praying, God changes you. God shapes you. And you go before the throne of grace to receive mercy. And sometimes, as hard as you pray, as often as you pray, as desperate as you pray, sometimes God doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you want him to answer Now, he may answer with a wait, he may answer with a no, he may answer with a yes, but God is going to sovereignly answer in the way that he sees best for your life. And that may be frustrating at times. And as we think about prayer, we've been studying the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In the Gospel of John here, verse 17, for the past few weeks, it's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible from the lips of Jesus himself. And it shows us Christ's passion for God's glory and the desperate need to pray. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading some books that have been really helpful, just for me personally, on the character of God. And these books are focusing on a very particular attribute of God, and that is what we call the immutability of God. That means God's unchanging, the unchanging nature of God, the fact that God does not change. And it gives us great confidence. Listen to how the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession describes God. This is powerful. This is beautiful. I can't think of any other statement that just really resonates with me about who God is. This is what it says. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, 
a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. I can't think of any better way to describe God than that. So as we think about prayer this morning, let me ask you two questions. Here's question number one. Is God absolutely sovereign and powerful? And the answer from the people would be, yes, okay, good. I'm glad you're awake. Let me give you some passages of Scripture that tell us about the power of God, the name of God as we've been singing about this morning. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. That's a powerful, that's, that's God's name, the, the great I am, the one who exists above all earthly powers. Exodus fifteen eleven. this is the song of Moses. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? God responds to Job in Job 41.11. This is God saying, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Acts 17, 24-25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Romans eleven thirty four through 36 For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We could go on and on about how God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is majestic. God is wonderful. So question number one, is God absolutely powerful and majestic and holy and sovereign? Yes. Question number two, maybe you've never thought about this. Are the prayers of Jesus always answered? Yes. Yes. Romans 8, 32-34. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Who has brought any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. And everything Jesus prays for, the Father answers, because Jesus and the Father are one. Hebrews 7.25, 
Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so I want you to think about something for this, for this morning. You have a God who is absolutely powerful, holy, and sovereign. God the Father. You've got Jesus Christ the Son who's at the right hand of the Father praying, interceding for you. And number three, Jesus has promised us that he's given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to empower us. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the full weight of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, encouraging you, empowering you, giving you everything you need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who's called us to His own glory and excellence. So when we think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before He's to face the cross, and He prays, and He's praying for you, and He's praying for me, before an Almighty God who's sovereign, who always answers His prayers. This should give us great encouragement that we are loved by the triune God. And so for the past few weeks, we've been looking at verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself. This morning, we're going to shift gears where Jesus begins to pray for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, if you've got your Bible open to John 17, let's begin in verse 6 and read through verse 19. And let's continue to hear the words of the prayer of Jesus. This, again, is a prayer that Jesus is praying to the Father. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, this is rich, this is deep, 
And I can't even begin to cover all of what Jesus said. I would not be able to do justice to it in one sermon, this, this section here. So what I want us to do before we even dive into this prayer over the next few weeks, I wanted to give a bird's eye view. Sometimes it's good to step back and say, what's the entire prayer about? And then we'll go look at it in pieces. It's kind of like the Empire State Building. When you go on top of the Empire State Building, you, you look down and you see all of Manhattan. You get the bird's eye view. And then later on, you go down and you, you explore the streets and you get involved in the nitty-gritty. For this morning, we're going to do the bird's eye view. What, what's the sum and substance of this prayer about? What's the overall big picture? And so there's two topics that we can look at in this prayer. Why does Jesus pray? And what does Jesus pray for in wanting his disciples to experience? So let's ask the first question, the big question, why does Jesus pray for his disciples? He's praying for his disciples here. Why is Jesus praying for his disciples? And and by extension, you and me. Well, there's two primary reasons. First... And most importantly, Jesus prays for the glory of God to be on display in the cross and in the lives of his disciples after he leaves. Everything comes back to the glory of God. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus used the word glory or glorified five times. So this is really what's on the heart of Jesus in the entire prayer is the glory of God. Glorify me. I want you to be glorified with the glory I had before before, uh, the world existed. But notice verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus wants the disciples to experience his glory and in turn for him to be glorified in them so that they display his glory. And that should be our desire as well. If everything comes back to God's glory as the chief end of man, that should be the heartbeat of everything that we're about. Psalm 115 verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Probably one of my favorite psalms. Not to us, but to your name give the glory. And then there's another passage of Scripture that you should probably have underlined, highlighted in your Bible, memorized. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So the reason Jesus prays is for the glory of God to be on display in the cross, the glory of God to be on display in his disciples, and by extension, everything that we should be about is the glory of God. Living for the glory of God, praying for the glory of God, doing everything for the glory of God. That's the ultimate reason why Jesus prays. But there's a second reason he prays. Jesus prays because these are his chosen people. These are his men. These are the the ones that God has given him out of the world. He's interceding as high priest for his chosen people. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Down in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
Now, obviously, this is a focus on God's sovereign predestination and election, and we'll get to that as we, as we unfold over the coming weeks, but we need to understand something, that Jesus here is specifically praying for believers. Now, you may be a little confused in verse 9 where Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. We need to be careful to not take that as an absolute statement that Jesus never prays for the world. Because in just a few moments when he's hanging on the cross and the, the pagan Roman soldiers are nailing him to the cross and they're casting garments for his clothing, Jesus prays for them. He prays for lost people who are of the world. In Luke twenty three thirty four, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and they cast lots to divide his garments. So in that context, Jesus is praying a prayer of forgiveness for those in the world. Paul tells us to pray for all types of people and not just to limit our prayers to believers. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But when you look at this prayer... The reason Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, is because the requests, the things that he prays for, can only apply to believers. These, these things that he's praying for do not apply to non-believers. And you'll see that very clearly. Only believers are recipients of these types of things that Jesus is praying for. Now, we need to be praying for lost people. We need to be praying for the salvation of lost people. We pray almost every Sunday night in our prayer meeting. A lot of times we pray for lost people by name. We pray that God would open the eyes of their heart. We pray for people to be repenting and believing and coming to faith in Christ. So we need to be diligent about praying for lost people. But this is not an evangelistic prayer that Jesus has for the world. This is a specific prayer he has for believers, those who are his own. So question number one, why does Jesus pray? For the glory of God and for the good of his people. These are his people. Okay, but here's the the second big question. What? What does Jesus pray for his disciples to experience? What What does the prayer request consist of? What's Jesus praying for? Now, grammatically, syntactically, all the study, there's two main prayer requests in verse 11 and in verse 17. And I understand that, and I understand how the Greek language leads me to believe that. But as I've studied this prayer, I actually see five major things that Jesus is praying for. So this this sermon's called The Five Prayers of Jesus. Five overarching requests that Jesus prays for his disciples and by extension us. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. How did I start the sermon? We have a sovereign, powerful, awesome God. And number two, that sovereign, powerful, awesome God is always going to answer Jesus' prayers. So if Jesus is praying for us, these prayers are going to be answered for you and for me. Now, what are these prayers? Here's prayer number one. And again, this is big picture. We're going to come back and look at this over the coming weeks in, in more depth, but this is big picture. First of all, Jesus prays for the preservation, security, and protection of the disciples from the hatred of the world and the attacks of the devil. You see there, 
in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Verse 11, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. This whole idea of keeping, guarding, protecting. What's going to happen after Jesus dies on the cross, rises again, and goes back up to heaven? What are these men going to be responsible for doing? They're going to be waiting around on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's going to come, empower them, and what are they going to be responsible to do? Start the gospel. Start preach the good news. Start the church. Plant churches. Go preach the gospel. Do you think they're going to face opposition and hostility and satanic attack and temptation to get discouraged? Absolutely. And so what Jesus prays for them is that they would be kept. They would be guarded. They would not, they would not be given to temptation to be defeated to fall into major sin. It reminds me of what Jesus prayed for in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 13, part of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I am thankful that Jesus, as our high priest, prayed for this for you and me. That he prayed to keep us, to guard us, to protect us. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 5, 7-8? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So cast all your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now let me just ask you a question. Do you need protection from hostile attacks? Do you need security in times of spiritual warfare? Do you need the strength to persevere in the Christian life and make sure that you make it to the end? Jesus prays for you. He's at the right hand of the Father making sure that you're protected, that you're guarded, that you're secure, and that you're going to make it to the end. Because what did Jesus say earlier? Jesus says in John 10, 28-29, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Two hands, right? You're in the hand of Jesus. You're in the hand of the Father. No one can snatch you out of that hand. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Prayer request number one of Jesus, that you would be guarded, you would be protected, you would be secure against the onslaughts of the world, against the onslaughts of the devil, against your own flesh. You will make it to the end. You will persevere to the end. You will finish the race because God powerfully works in you to make sure it happens. And Jesus prays for that. And guess what? Jesus' prayers always get answered. Is God going to say no to Jesus? 
If God says no to Jesus, then we have a problem because you have a division between the Father and the Son. They're always in unity. All right, second prayer. Secondly, Jesus prays for the unity of the disciples to experience a oneness that is similar to the love within the Trinity. A unity, a oneness. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This oneness, this fellowship, this unity. And it's similar to the very love between the Father and the Son, a a Trinitarian type of love. Now, later on in the prayer, as we get to it, when Jesus prays for for us, um, verses 20 through 26, look at verse 20. We're, We're not even there yet, but look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. In them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. One. Now, I'm very fascinated that Jesus prays for unity, that he prays for oneness. Because among sinful people, unity is not something that naturally happens, is it? We all have our biases. We all have our prejudices. We all have our hang-ups and personal sins. And we have issues that we bring to the table that sometimes make it difficult for there to be unity in the church. But Jesus prays for that. Why does Jesus pray for unity? Because he knows we're sinners. And he knows that we're not going to naturally be unified. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if Jesus is praying for our unity... And Paul says to be eager to maintain the unity. Is this something that you should both be praying for and striving for as well? Unity in the body. So think about these two issues so far. Jesus prays, number one, for our protection, our security. But number two, he prays for our unity, our oneness, our fellowship. Third, Jesus prays, that the disciples would experience the full joy of their salvation. So not only does Jesus pray for our protection and for our unity, but for our joy. For our joy. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus has already been talking about joy. Remember, go back to chapter 15 for a moment. Turn back to chapter 15, verse 11. I know this was many months ago. But John chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is giving us his joy and a joy that is full. And then over in John chapter 16, verses 22 through 24. 
John 16, 22 and 24. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Aren't you thankful that Jesus prayed for your joy? Not just a little bit of joy, but the fullness of joy. An indestructible joy. A joy that no one can take from you because it comes from Jesus. Now, when do you need joy the most? It's really easy to be joyful when things are going well, right? But what about when you're going through suffering? When you're going through difficult times? Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 3-5, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Are you praying for joy? In the midst of your struggles, are you you seeking the face of the Lord to give you joy? You know, Nehemiah 8.10 says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord will be your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 So what has Jesus prayed for so far? He prays for your protection. He prays for your security. Number two, He prays for your unity. Number three, He prays for your joy. What's number four? Well, number four, Jesus prays that the disciples would be sanctified by the word of truth. This is in verse 17. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is the whole idea of growing in godliness by being immersed in the Bible. So it's so important that we saturate ourselves with the Scriptures, that we know the Word of God. Now, we understand that the Word of God helps us know doctrine. And we know the Word of God helps us not to fall into false doctrine. But, but we need to take it a step further. We, we don't just read this book for information. We read this book so that it changes our entire lives. And our entire worldview and our heart and our mind is shaped by the very words of God. And that's what Jesus is praying for. Sanctify them, change them, cleanse them by your word. Transform them by your word. Listen to how the psalmist describes the word of God. Is this the way you view God's word? Psalm 19, 7 through 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Colossians three sixteen through 17 Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell, live in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Are you saturating yourself in the Word? Is this Word dwelling in you richly? Is it reviving your soul? Is it making you mature? Is it making you wise? 
Does it rejoice your heart? Is your entire worldview shaped by the Bible? Charles Spurgeon was very fond of John Bunyan. Now, if you know who John Bunyan was, John Bunyan was the one who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, many of you have seen the movie, read the book. Uh, most people would say next to the Bible, it's the, it's the top-selling book in the English-speaking world of all time next to the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress. And Charles Spurgeon says something very interesting about John Bunyan. He said, that dude, that's not how Spurgeon said it, but this is my paraphrase, he's got so much scripture in his writings So much scripture in his preaching that if you were to cut John Bunyan, he would bleed, and and Charles Spurgeon made up a word, he would bleed bibline. And what he meant by that was the Bible was so much a part of John Bunyan, if you cut him, the Bible would just ooze out. I wonder if that describes you. The Bible is so full of you, if somebody were to cut you, Blood wouldn't come out, but bloodline would come out. The Bible would come out. Because you're saturated. You're being sanctified by the Word. The Word is truth. Okay, so what has Jesus prayed for so far? He's prayed for our protection, our security, our preservation. He's prayed for our unity. He's prayed for our joy. And He's prayed for the, for the growth and godliness through this Word. But what's the fifth thing He prays for? Fifth... Jesus prays that the disciples would be set apart for the mission of being sent into the world to declare the gospel. This is the last request. You see this in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Now this is John's version of the Great Commission. Jesus is sending them out into the world to declare the gospel, to preach the gospel, to make disciples. It's, it's very similar to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be sent out to declare the gospel to the nations to make disciples. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now this was the primary responsibility of these men, but it's our responsibility as well. We are sent out on mission. I don't know if you realize that, but every time you step out of, uh, of your house, you're on a mission. Whether you know it or not, you are sent out to represent Christ, to declare his gospel, to live for Jesus, and to tell other peoples about the gospel. You're on a mission. So let's step back and think about these five areas that Jesus prays for. Okay, he prays for our protection. He prays for our security. Number two, he prays for our unity. Number three, he prays for our joy. Number Four, he prays for our spiritual growth in the word. And number five, he prays for our evangelism. He prays for our mission. He prays for our disciple making. Five big ticket items. I can't think of anything really more important in life, in the life of an individual believer, in the life of the church, than these five things. When you stop and think about it, these five things are really the sum and substance of your entire life as a believer and as the life of our church. And so you can take great comfort that Jesus in the garden right before he died prayed for you. Is our Father absolutely sovereign and powerful? 
Absolutely. Does the Father always answer the prayers of Jesus? Absolutely. Has He given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to empower us, to equip us? Absolutely. So we can live the Christian life with the confidence that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have done and are doing everything necessary for your life and godliness. So you're never left alone to your own devices. You're never abandoned. You can pray with confidence that God hears your prayers and He will answer them the way He sovereignly sees fit. So let me just ask you a few questions this morning. Do you want the assurance that when you go out and face the temptation of the world and you face the onslaughts of the devil that you're going to be protected? Do you want that assurance? Do you want the assurance that you can have godly relationships with other believers and true Christian unity and true Christian fellowship and you can have healthy, loving relationships? Do you want the assurance that you can experience that? Do you want the assurance that you can have joy and not just a little bit of joy, but the fullness of joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles? Do you want the assurance that you're going to grow in godliness through the Bible being part of your life and being sanctified? Do you want the assurance that when you go out and share the gospel, when you're sent out to, to declare the gospel and to make disciples, God will be with you, that Christ will be with you? Do you want that assurance? Well, then trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who, as our high priest, prayed for you in the garden, died for you on the cross and is now interceding for you right now. He prayed for you, he died for you, and he's interceding for you right now. And that's a finished work because God is sovereign and he always answers the prayers of Jesus. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you want protection? Do you want unity? Do you want joy? Do you want to grow in your Bible? And do you want to be effective in evangelism? Jesus prayed for those things for you. And he prayed for this church. And God always answers the prayers of Jesus. So that should give you great confidence. That should give you great assurance. That should give you great comfort that you have an advocate who died for you, prayed for you, and is interceding for you right now. And God always answers the prayers of Jesus. So let me ask you to bow your heads and let's go directly to Jesus, our advocate in prayer. Come before you this morning with joy in our hearts because we know that you are a sovereign God. You are powerful. You are majestic. There is no God like you. You're exalted above the earth. You do whatever you please. And Jesus, I'm so thankful that in the garden you prayed for us. In very, very practical everyday life things that we need Lord thank you that you prayed for our protection thank you that you prayed for our unity thank you that you prayed for our joy 
Thank you you prayed for our spiritual growth and the truth. And thank you for praying for our success when we are sent out. Lord, help us to leave this place with assurance. Help us to leave this place with confidence. That we have a great high priest that's interceding for us at this very moment. Because of your finished work, Jesus. Because you cried out, it is finished. Because you died, was buried, and rose again. And you're at the right hand of the Father. We may not always get the answer in the way that we want it. And we may not always get it in the timing we want it. But we do trust in a sovereign God who answers according to his plan of what he sees best. And ultimately, Jesus, it comes back to your glory. So we don't want to ask for anything that's outside of your glory. We don't want to ask for anything that's not pointing us and other people to your glory. And so, Lord, would everything that we pray, everything that we do, every decision we make, be for your glory and your glory alone. Whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Would you encourage us this week week with these words, Lord, that we may go out of this place equipped, encouraged, transformed because of your word and your power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.